Good afternoon, everybody. Well, I see you're awake so far. We'll see what happens as we go. <laughs> as you know, we are getting towards the end of the feast now on the sixth day. And it's sad to say, but now we need to look at our calendar and start to pack just in another day. You know, we have uh, the next day and then the last great day. And we're already thinking about that, perhaps. And it's really sad because it's going to be another huge experience for, for my wife and I, a monumental task, in fact, because she brought just about everything. In fact, the neighbors thought we were moving when we left. But she even brought her own appliances. So, <laughs> But we've had some great messages during this feast, some wonderful messages by our evangelist and some of the pastors, and I think probably little could be added without repetition, but as we've heard, it's okay to have some repetition. In fact, you might remember this uh, one particular pastor. This was in a Protestant church, and they were about to fire him because he gave the same sermon over and over again. And so they had a board meeting, and there the board was was talking about, well, we got to get rid of this guy. we got to replace him. He just keeps giving the same sermon over and over again. And the chairman, a little wiser, a little bit less impetuous, said, well, what was the sermon about? And they started scratching their head. And I said, they said, well, we don't know. They said, let him give it one more time. And, you know, we're here on the Sabbath day, and we have the Sabbath every seven days. And probably because being flesh, we need that so we can remember God's great plan and remember what it is he has in store for us. You know, as we get older, we wonder sometimes maybe how we got to where we are, how it is that we're sitting in this room as opposed to driving up and down the street outside, And also, we wonder about our life. We look back on what accomplishments we may have, may have had, we may have. We start maybe even thinking about our legacy. And perhaps we have trouble figuring out what our legacy is. And maybe we have led maybe a relatively uneventful life. Nothing special has happened. Not, you know, my name has never been in lights. Not famous. And of course, we know, as we've heard, that God normally calls the weak and the base, not the rich and famous, not very often. And normally, as Jesus said, the gospel is preached to the poor. So you think about these things, and especially as you get older, and probably a lot of our younger people have thought through these things as well. And um, you begin to think, is that all there is in this life? Is that all there is to this life? And you might think, where do I fit in in the grand scheme of things? Where do I fit in? Am I important at all? Because when you look at this world of seven billion people and little old me, and what have I done? My name has never been up in lights. I'm not famous. I haven't. No one really knows if I exist. Is this all there is? What is the purpose, really, for me being here? The title of my sermon, brethren, this afternoon is Our Royal Destiny. Because we have such a wonderful, 
future. That God has given us a future and a hope. The rest of the world really just doesn't have a clue about this future. They have, they don't have this hope. So we want to show the purpose that God has for us. That yes, Satan has a plan, as we heard in the sermonette, but God has a better plan. God has a better plan. You know, our place in society is determined really in two different ways. One can earn their social status by their achievements, and you can be recognized for your achievements. They call that a self-made man, or they call it the achieved status. On the other hand, one may be placed in society by their inherited position. You know, you might, you've heard it in this uh, society, being born with a silver spoon in your mouth. And that's called an ascribed status. And so many are born with certain advantages, certain disadvantages. Some are born poor. Some are born with racial inequalities, which are perpetuated in our, in our society. Some are born with congenial defects. And all these things infect, really affect your entire life and how you live your life and how you get along in life and what you're able to accomplish in life. But all of us are born with certain advantages and disadvantages. And largely, though, it's dependent upon who our parents are. Who is your parent? We know some live longer, some live less time. Some are able to hide their age a lot better than others. We actually met a lady that was, uh, well, she, I won't tell you her age, but she looked like a teenager, and uh, she was an island girl, and you, I, I just had to think those island girls really do hide their age very well. So some are able to do that. There's a Nobel Prize winner. His name is Steven Weinberg. Now, he has a lot of letters after his name, and he's certainly considered by people in this world, this society, as being highly esteemed. Very smart individual, certainly someone that they look up to. But he wrote, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. Well, is the universe pointless and is life pointless, as this man would have you believe? And frankly, if you believe this, then you've wandered in this room by accident. (laughs) And you're in the wrong meeting. And if you believe that we really have no purpose other than the here and now, then you won't understand anything else is said here after this. You know, there has to be, as foundational faith, the belief in the existence of a real creator God. You know, there was a little girl... One time, asked her mother, you know, as little children do, they wonder about things. She said, Mom, where do people come from? That's a good question, and probably if you've had children, you've had a similar question to that, and you wonder and scratch your head, how am I going to answer this question? And she thought about it a minute, and she told her, he said, you know, God created Adam and Eve, and they had children, and they had grandchildren. And pretty soon, as they populated the earth, That's how you got here, and that's how people got here, and that's where people come from. And she went along happily on her way, satisfied with the answer. But a couple weeks later, she 
began to think about it again and she said well i'll ask daddy what he what his answer is and so she came to her dad's daddy where do people come from and he got all philosophical and intellectual and he said well this meteorite probably hit the planet and and then these microorganisms began to grow and in this in this primordial soup and from there single cell organisms evolved and then finally into monkeys and then into human beings and she was perplexed so she went back and she you know just this really bothered her because she got one answer from mom and a different answer from dad and she said mom you told me god created human beings and daddy said that we came from monkeys and mom said honey don't worry about it it's all very very simple just very simple you see he was describing his side of the family <laughs> I think that's a good answer for those that would believe that. But we have scientists, we have educators, philosophers, all the intellectuals of this world and and even clergymen have bought into this these theories and the prevailing view that life's only purpose is for the here and now. There is no supreme being. That's their answer. With a plan and their in the end result of their theology is that life is po it's pointless that they don't have the answers to life's big questions they don't know what the meaning of life is that there is a purpose now about 3 years ago probably a lot of you remember this um Catherine the duchess of cambridge you might know her by the other name kate middleton and her husband prince william they welcomed their first child on monday july the 2nd 2013 now there's been another child since then and i think there's the tabloid rumors say that perhaps she maybe maybe has another one on the way but this one in july the 22nd 2013 was their first born but preceding this birth and during the pregnancy there was a lot of speculation there was a lot of fanfare and people were very excited about a new child in the royal family and a lot of people keep up with the monarch in the in the monarchy in britain but even after all this finally a child was born now you know the fanfare that came along with that that's because of the child's potential in the british royal family the enormous potential that this child had because of his ascribed status and being born in that family it could be said brethren that this child was born for a very important purpose in fact he was born to be king he had a royal destiny but he inherited it he couldn't earn it by virtue of his parents and who they were he has that destiny and yet he did not choose his parents none of us have chosen our parents he had no say in who his parents were to be this status was conferred it was bestowed and granted to him by his parents and you know he had his he has his entire life laid out for him 
his whole life's laid out. His purpose and destiny has been proclaimed and long decided even before he was born. What about us? What status is conferred to us? What, brethren, is your purpose? What is my purpose? The purpose for being born. Let's turn to John chapter 18 because Jesus Christ, the one that was prophesied to come in the flesh, to be born in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, was also born of a scribed status. That is, he was born with certain advantages as a result of who his father is and was. John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again. That's the governor's house or a judgment hall where they conducted judicial hearings. And he called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And he had been accused of that. But Jesus answered, he said, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did other tell, others tell you about this concerning me? Now, where did you get this accusation? And, you know, we can look in Luke 23, it did, where it shows that others did tell Pilate this. So the rumors were going around. They did tell Pilate this. They had falsely accused him of being a rebel against Caesar's government and against Pilate in an effort to upset the reigning government at that time to think maybe that he might try to overthrow it. Thank you. Thank you, thank you sir. You know, they accused him. They accused him of not paying his taxes. They twisted his message that he brought, perverted uh, the message, the good news of the coming kingdom. And uh, so Pilate here is answering and asking the question. And uh, after Jesus said, um, did they tell you this? In verse 35, he says, am I a Jew? You know, I don't know what's going on with you people. That's basically what Pilate's saying. Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you to me. What have you done? What have you done? And Jesus answered, he's answering Pilate's first question, in fact, are you king of the Jews? And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. My government, my realm, the realm of existence that is not flesh and blood is not of this world. And I think we look at this, brethren, as a remarkable lesson here. Because we tend to get caught up in our surroundings and certainly get caught up in the election cycle that's going on now. And it is very interesting, I'll grant you that, because we've never seen anything like this before. But we get caught up in it. You know, I had one lady say that she was sure that Jesus was a Democrat. And she said, I can prove it, too. I can prove it. In fact, you just look in the Bible. Jesus rode on a donkey, and so he's a Democrat. <laughs> well, I emphatically told her, well, Jesus is not a Democrat, and he's not a Republican. He's not an independent. But he is a king. And he was born to be king, as he goes on to, to answer Pilate here. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. And brethren, because this is also not our kingdom, that's why we don't get involved in the politics. That's why we don't fight about it or fight for it. We are ambassadors. He said, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. It's not from here. And still Pilate didn't get the answer he wanted, not directly. He says, he says are you a king then? And then Jesus Christ plainly says, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. See, he had the ascribed status because of who his father is and was. For this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Now, what truth is he talking about? He's talking about the very gospel of the kingdom of God that many even today have rejected, brethren. They've rejected that there is Jesus Christ as the king of that kingdom. Even in some of the other churches of God, to some degree, have rejected that. Are you a king then? But some reject that. He says, I was born to be a king. And I came into this world to be a king. But not of this world. And not from here. And not yet. But he continues, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And those of the truth understand the revelation of this coming kingdom of Christ. It's been revealed to us. And if we understand it, it's because God gave it to us. There's no other way we can understand it. We're special that way. You know, you look out there and now we have a motorcycle rally and these motorcycles are going up and down the street. And if you go on further inland, you'll see tractor trailers going up and down the street. And none of them understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven as we do. We're special that way. God has given us that. Pilate said, what is truth? You see, he didn't understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. He didn't understand them at all. But he did know that Christ was talking about a future event. It wasn't about the here and now. It wasn't that Christ was about to overthrow the Roman kingdom. And he understood that. Even Pilate understood this, that there was no threat to his present earthly kingdom. But Christ was clear about this one thing, that he was born to be a king, but not of this world. A kingdom that has nothing to do with this society. Most don't understand that. I hope we do, brethren, because it's been mentioned that you just can't get away from the politics of this world. You know, it's if you turn the television on, if you're not watching uh, uh, perhaps a movie without commercials, every time there is a commercial break, it's two or three or four or five commercials in a row. And they're each hurling insults at one another. And, uh, you know, Jesus Christ, he's living in a political time here. And basically he tells Pilate, you know, I don't have a dog in that race. <laughs> this kingdom is not from here. You know, if we turn to Proverbs 18, I think it was mentioned. I 
think it was last night in the Bible study. You have in this day and age, this group and that group, and you have some say, well, we're independent. We're not with any group. And you know, God says basically here pretty clear when you, when you break it down and understand it, that there is no such thing as an independent church. No, Christ will marry a church. He's not going to marry independents here and there and everywhere. Proverbs 18, verse 1, a man who isolates himself. He makes himself separate. He makes himself independent. He seeks his own desire, his own thing. He wants to go his own way and do his own thing. And so it says here he rages against all wise judgment. In essence, he defies sound judgment. He, he doesn't want to hear truth. He has his own ideas. Verse 2, a fool, speaking of this very same person, describing this man, has no delight in understanding, but in, or you could say only, in expressing his own heart, his own opinions, and not truth. You know, this very feast... Feast of Tabernacles pictures major changes, not typical of the chronicle of man's failed history of governing himself. Man has been unable to govern himself. But a new government, government will have been established on the earth. That's what this feast pictures, brethren. That's what we celebrate. A government not from here, not of this world. We're strangers and pilgrims in this world. And it's interesting, too, and I'm glad that in one way uh, I don't have a badge because we came from the Hilton Head refugees. <laughs> I know there's some blank ones filled out, and, and some have been very creative, some of the Hilton Head refugees, and we're, we're thankful to be welcomed here in Panama City. But one lady wrote on her badge, from the lost tribe of Hilton Head. <laughs> and it's wonderful that we've been able to take refuge here in Panama City, some in Gatlinburg, some in Charlotte, and other feast sites. Let's turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he's called out to go to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And brethren, we're called out. And we have an inheritance. We also have an ascribed status because of who our father is. And he cried out, not knowing where he was going. That's an amazing thing when you think about it. How many would just move out of your house and um, just go? I'm not going to tell you where you're going to live. Just, just pack up and start going, heading down the street. That's difficult to do. When you read this, you, you start to understand the type of man Abraham is and was. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So he had this promise. 
For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Brethren, I hate to tell you this, but when you look around at Panama City, as beautiful as it is, God did not build this city. God did not build any of the cities that we see today. This is not God's world. We are told to come out of this world. We're to be ambassadors to bring a message of peace and a message of of this coming wonderful kingdom of God that's going to rule not just for a thousand years, but for eternity. We continue in this, verse 16. There's all these patriarchs and matriarchs. It's listed at the beginning of this chapter. They all died. They all died not receiving the promise. They did not receive their inheritance. They're dead. Well, brethren, we haven't received it yet either. But we're just like them. We're in training. We're in training to gain experience for rulership. Now, there's a lot of experiences in this world, and you can have a lot of bad experiences. And we hope we can have positive experiences and help us learn to rule. But they didn't receive their promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They knew they were not of this world. They were ready to leave it, and they did. Now, we've got to go back in a few days We're to be in it, but not of it. And keep ourselves separate. Verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. We seek a homeland because, frankly, this isn't our homeland. It isn't our kingdom. It's not our society. And when we look at, you know, watch the television, watch the debates and all those things, those aren't even our candidates. This is Satan's world. And yet I've heard people talk about who they might vote for. If it's Satan's world, and certainly we know the story in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where Christ was being tempted by Satan, and Satan said, you know, these are my kingdoms. I have authority over them. And Christ didn't disagree with him at all. He had that authority. It's been given to him for a temporary period of time. Until Jesus Christ returns and those kingdoms become his. Right now, they're Satan's kingdoms. And frankly, they're Satan's candidates. Now, why would you want to vote for Satan's candidate? Especially if we're an ambassador, we really don't have a citizenship here at least not spiritually. So it's not our society. Verse 15, And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, you know, they didn't even think about it where they left. They would have had opportunity to return. But they chose not to go back. Not to go back in that filth. Brethren, we have to make that same choice Verse 16, now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, 
For he has prepared a city for them, and God is preparing a city and a place for us. And this, picture, this feast pictures and celebrates a time when the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of Jesus Christ. And it also pictures, you know, we have seven days of the feast. It also pictures a wedding celebration with Jesus Christ and his church. But this feast and prophecy pictures the fulfillment of what we just read in John chapter 18 and much, much more. In fact, this feast more generally pictures all God's holy days and what they reveal in the most fantastic and most remarkable plan that ever could be devised and certainly could only be devised by a supreme being, our Father in heaven. And yet most can't see this. The smallest people are, can see it. The smartest people can't. They think it's what we have now is all there is. But these holy days, God's feast day, say help us to understand the age-old question of what is my purpose? What is, you know, why were we born? Do we have a royal destiny? A special purpose as did this child of the Duchess of Cambridge and Prince William and, you know, there in the kingdom of Great Britain. Do we have a purpose like that child? In fact, we do and much, much greater purpose that supersedes any earthly king. But we have a royal destiny comparable that, to that of Jesus Christ, brethren, our elder brother who came before us. And yet, if you tell some of mainstream Christianity these things, they would call that blasphemy even to ask such a question. But what does God tell us? What does his word plainly say? Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And brethren, we're already begotten sons. And God is looking forward to our full birth into his family to fulfill our royal destiny for which we were born. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of should be sonship there, not adopted. Sonship, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, or Daddy, or even, if you break that down even further into uh, the Arabic language, it would be Dada, one of the first words a child would utter. So he shows how personal this is. But upon receiving God's Spirit, brethren, the Creator is our Daddy. He's our daddy. And because he's our daddy, then we have an ascribed status, a royal destiny. Verse 16, the spirit himself or itself bears witness with our spirit. And God's spirit does complete us. And apart from God's spirit, frankly, brethren, uh, we're, in, we're so incomplete that we're insane. You think about that. Mankind, apart from God's spirit, is insane. 
He says it bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He's already saying it as if it happened, we're to be royal born of a royal birth. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Whatever Jesus Christ has, whatever he is inheriting, we inherit with him, brethren. Such a wonderful truth. Only God's church understands this. But there's a big if, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together, together with Jesus Christ, inheritors with him. For I consider the suffering of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And yet, as we heard in the sermonette, a man was willing to give it up for a couple seats. I've had to sit in that nosebleed section before. I remember those days where the speaker, I remember Mr. Armstrong, you're looking down at him and, you know, he's a big presence, but he still looked like an ant. But he was willing to give it up for nothing but a couple seats. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing, that is the appearing of, in this birth of the sons of God. And so we wait for it. We anticipate it in faith. We look forward to it just as the patriarchs did, not yet receiving it because we're still as yet begotten. We're not yet born. We're not yet inheritors. We're only heirs as of yet. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation didn't do this on its own. But it was subjected to this, but because of him who subjected it in hope. See, God has enormous hope for his creation. For those that are to be born into his family, but also the physical creation as well. He has enormous and great plans for it. And when you look up in the sky and you look up into the heavens, and I'm not talking about the nosebleed section, way on beyond that. It was all created, brethren, for us. He tells us he wants to give all things to us. Because the creation, verse 21 itself, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. It's in a state of decay right now. But it's going to be delivered from that into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Brethren, you get what that's saying? Beyond the thousand years, we, we, we have more work to do even beyond that. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about what we do beyond the thousand years, but if we're born into the family of creators, then we also will be creators when you think about it. And when we look at the vast universe, think about what would you do with your own planet? You know, some of us might be very creative in what we would do. Uh, maybe you would be a planetary landscaper. Uh, you know, just plant your own favorite variety of trees or just to, just, you know, to meditate on these things and what God has for us. You know, I think uh, Walt Disney would be a very creative individual. Just imagine a planet with 7,000, 7 million, 7 billion dwarfs. 
into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labor with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the sonship to be born into the family, the redemption of our body. Verse 28, And we know that all things work together for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, what's what we're talking about? His purpose for us. But even through the trials, brethren, and we've had trials right up until the feast. And, you know, canceling a feast side is not an easy thing. First of all, it takes, you know, takes a lot out of someone that's planned, as I did and my wife did, and a lot of others, some of you here, planned and planned, and then all of a sudden we find out it, it's not going to happen. It can't happen. And I found out that it's almost as hard to undo a feast as it is to do one. <laughs> and it was disappointing, and it's a trial. And it was a trial for some of you that were, but perhaps as, as of yet have received your deposit or even your payment for your, for your villa or your uh, dwelling there. But God knows what he's doing. And he has a purpose for all that. And sometimes it's not immediately clear what that purpose is. But I can tell you in all likelihood, it, he, it's a test. God tests us. And he wants to see what we're made of because, you know, it takes a lot to qualify to be a son in his kingdom. And yet it's not all up to us. But we're called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So this kingdom is composed wholly of God beings. Now, a lot of people get this mixed up and, you know, they think about the millennium as the kingdom of God. And brethren, the millennium is not the kingdom of God. The millennium is a thousand years. It's a time span. The kingdom of God is eternal. The kingdom of God is forever. The kingdom of God has no end. Let's just turn there to Isaiah chapter chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Notice verse 6. For unto us a child is born. And he was born of a scribe status. Because he has a special purpose. Of being a son. Unto us a son is given. But why? Here's the reason. The government will be upon his shoulder. Christ will bear the responsibility of his government. He'll carry it on his shoulders. And brethren, if we're there, if we don't give up, 
because we're sons, we'll be there as well. And he'll delegate some of that responsibility to us. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government. You could say kingdom. And peace. There will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. Notice what his kingdom does to order it. God is, God is a God of order. God is a God of perfect timing. He's not the God of confusion. To order it and to establish it. To build it. With judgment and justice. Those two words that this world doesn't know very much about. Judgment and justice. You know, in this society, if you have some money or if you are politically connected, you pretty much can do whatever you want to do. We've, you know, you are what they might say above the law. Now, our founders would probably roll over in their grave because they thought they had created a society that no one, because the king often put himself above the law, but they thought they had created a society where no one was above the law. Let's turn to Isaiah 11. Notice verse 3. The second part, he says, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, not by what it appears to be. You know, that's a human uh, error, human uh, problem that we judge by appearances. We should get the facts. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor. No one is above the law. That's a biblical principle. Hold your place here and uh, come with me to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. You see, even the king was not to be above the law. That God told him to take with him the book of the law for a very specific purpose. Verse 19, she'll be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the eternal his God. And brethren, you know, that's primarily the reason we are here at his feast. As it tells us in Deuteronomy 14, to learn to fear the eternal our God, always to have that profound respect so that we're willing to obey. It says, be care- so that he would be careful to observe all the wa- words of the law and these statues, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he's not above the law. He's also under the same law, justice. And he's not to turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left that he'll prolong his days in his kingdom and he and his children in the midst of Israel. That principle 
is a biblical principle not to be of the law. Back to Isaiah 11. He'll decide with equity, verse 4, the meek of the, for the meek of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. This is prophetic as well when Christ returns. In fact, we read in Zechariah 14, where they'd come to battle with Jesus Christ. They gather there. All the, you know, they, they quit fighting amongst themselves just long enough to fight Christ. But it's no battle at all. It doesn't last very long. You can read the results of that battle in Zechariah 14. But righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. God is faithful. And notice verse 6 because it gives us an indication of what kind of government that Jesus Christ will rule over. Wonderful scripture here. It gives us a lot of encouragement. And frankly, I think it's dual talking about nations as well as animals. But the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. You know, we have on our seal or various church seals, and sometimes we have the pictures of the, of the lion and the lamb. And it's possible Hollywood has been able to, you know, I don't know, maybe they drugged the lion. <laughs> it's possible they can get the, lion, the lamb to lay down by the lion. But, you, you know, I can guarantee you the lamb's not going to get much sleep. Because in this world, it's survival of the fittest, isn't it? Something smaller and something, you know, less ferocious, little thing. It just, you know, gets eat up by the big thing. Survival of the fittest. And when you think about it, that's not the mind of God. But this is the mind of God here. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. Wonderful story here. Beautiful setting. Something we have to look forward to. Because we know it's not like that now. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. You just picture that in your mind. A big grassy meadow with bears and cows and lions. Of course, I don't read anything about any pigs here, but take that out of your, take that out of your mind's picture. <laughs> the young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So there's going to be some changes in their, in their physical makeup. I don't think that's too hard for God, do you? After all, it's been done before. You read about it in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 6 through 10. Actually, it's happened twice before. Because when you look at Genesis chapter 2, when the animals were brought to Adam, you, didn't, you don't read about any of the animals trying to eat Adam. And when they entered the ark, they didn't attack Noah's family. And so there's probably some physical changes that will occur that they can eat straw. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall 
put his hand in the viper's den. That's not the way it is right now. I'll tell you right now, if I come upon a snake, I'm going to kill it. Environmentalist, I'm not. Now, my wife, she doesn't kill him, but she can scream really loud. <laughs> in fact, I was uh, in, the, in, my, uh, in my office in our house, and I heard this blood-curdling scream outside. And I went outside, and there, my wife, she's still shaking, jumping up and down, and a black snake had ran right between her legs, I think. And uh, it's over there, it's over there. But we can't, we don't see this right now. We, we have fear of these creatures. But in God's kingdom, verse 9, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. They're not going to hurt in God's government. And the reason is because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, the eternal, as the waters cover the sea and it permeates the entire kingdom, entire world, the earth, so that even animals are affected. That's in God's kingdom. Right now we see we see a lot of trouble. We see trouble in justice. We, we see trouble even in our marriages and, and a, lot, a lot of times even in the church. And you know, God built the institution of marriage. It's his institution. In our society today, we don't even know what male and female is anymore. And yet you can just read it from the very beginning where God says in Genesis chapter 1 that he made them male and female. But we have all these smart people and now they're debating in North Carolina and I hear it's, it's spread everywhere in all the states that we don't know how to tell a boy from a girl anymore. Malachi chapter 2. Verse 11, Judah, and Judah was following in the footsteps of the other nations, just as our nation does and has, has dealt treacherously or deceitfully, is a synonym there. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. Brethren, I don't know about you, but that word abomination is one of the strongest words I, I can think of. And it ought to get our attention if God calls something an abomination. For Judah has profaned the eternal's holy institution, which he loves. God loves marriage, brethren. God loves families. Because he's a family. And he has a plan for his family. Look what, the, what Judah had done. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, we can look at this historically, but for us, brethren, really we should look at it from more of a spiritual standpoint. Which is why we don't marry outside the church. It's a foreign god. This is not God's world. And if we go outside of God's people looking for a mate, it's the daughter of a foreign god. 
And they had strayed at that time. They lusted. They married anybody in addition to their own real wife. They joined with pagan women. And certainly something God did not want even then. He doesn't want now because it takes your eye off the focus and the goal. Verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the eternal with tears. With weeping and crying. And you know when families break up, there's a lot of weeping and crying. It's a horrible thing. And when God looks at that, he says it's an abomination. And he hates it. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with a good will from your hands. Just like Christ said in Matthew 5, that you go to your brother and or your sister in this case, and you reconcile with them before you bring an offering. Otherwise, it has no meaning. Yet you say, verse 14, for what reason? You know, why don't you accept our offering? You know, my money is just as good as his. Because the eternal has been witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, which with whom you have dealt treacherously or deceitfully or unfaithfully. I don't think I want the eternal God, the creator of the universe, to be a witness against me. Because that's one law case you're just not going to win. You've dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. He's saying you ignored your covenant. You've ignored your vows. The ones that you made and you were and that I was a witness to. Verse 15, but he did not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit that is a vestige or a trace referring to the spirit of man. In other words, he's saying, look, you were made different than animals. You have the ability to reason and to think. You shouldn't act like animals. He says, and why one? Making them one, he says, because he seeks godly offspring. In other words, brethren, he wants many royal children in his royal family. Because he's the firstborn, Jesus Christ being the firstborn. And he goes on to say he does hate divorce. And that we should really take heed to our spirit or... You know, get rid of that rotten attitude and think about these things that we do not deal treacherously. Because, brethren, our children children are very special to God. They're so special. You know, it was a wonderful opportunity to be up here and hold the little babies uh, on Thursday. It's a wonderful blessing to have them. You know, God's Word says, you know, Happy if your quiver is full of them. We had that uh, that film yesterday showing the Tomorrow's World presentations. And we had one in Crossville, Tennessee, a few years back. Some people here from Crossville might remember this. And a family came in. There was eight kids, parents and grandparents. And he came up to me and he came, I think, just to almost before it started and most of the seats were full except for that front row usually at local congregations no one sits in the front I've always threatened to take the lectern to the back 
say, turn your chair around. But I said, here, we have some seats here. He said, I'm going to need a whole row. I said, if you'll get busy, you can have two rows. <laughs> he looked at me just so funny because he'd already been busy. He had eight. First Peter two, verse nine. First Peter two, verse nine. says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Now, King James says peculiar. I think that's a better translation because, frankly, brethren, look around you. <laughs> I think that was mentioned on our, our video yesterday. But there's a reason why we're special. A reason why we're peculiar, at least in the world's eyes, we are peculiar. You know, you know, just think about what your neighbors think when you they see you come out of your house on the Sabbath day dressed up. Meanwhile, they, they're getting their fishing boat ready. <laughs> well, look at that crazy guy over there. He's this is a beautiful Saturday and he's going to I don't know what he's doing dressed up. Or on, you know, the Day of Atonement on Wednesday, we went out. We're his own special people that we may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is to proclaim and announce his excellency, his coming kingdom. And certainly our part in it, brethren. You know, notice also in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14 Verse 1 says, you are the children of the eternal, your God. We're the children. Not yet born. But God's spirit, or as it tells us in 1 John, his sperma. We're impregnated with his spirit. Brethren, that makes us royal blood. That makes us a part of the royal family to be born when Jesus Christ returns. Since you're the children of the eternal, your God, you shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. You know, don't get involved in the pagan practices of this world. For you are a holy people to the eternal, your God. We're separate. We're holy. And the eternal has chosen you to be a people for himself. There it is, a special treasure. We're valuable. We are important to God. Above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Think about that, brethren. Seven billion people out there. And God says we are more important and more valuable than all of them. Because of the job that he's going to have us do. In bringing them later also into his kingdom. Special treasure. And a royal destiny. You know, think about it, though. What if you do give up your... Your seat in his kingdom for a seat. Terrible to think of that, but a lot of people, as we heard the sermonette, may not be here next year. And yet God says, my plan will be fulfilled. Somebody else will take your crown if you don't follow through. Let's turn to Ezekiel 20. 
Ezekiel chapter chapter 20. Both a history and a prophecy. Verse, verse 30, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the eternal God, Are you defiling yourself in the manner of your fathers and committing harlotry according to their abominations? For when you offer your gifts and you make your sons pass through the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols, even to this day. So shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel. Is this the way you're going to ask about me? And certainly that's what we see in mainstream Christianity. The harlotry, the worshiping of things rather than the Creator. As I live, says the eternal God, I will not be inquired of by you in this way. God says it's not going to happen like that. What you have in your mind shall never be. And even on, as the millennium starts, some are going to have that in, the, in their mind. And God says it's not going to be that way again. When you say we will be like the Gentiles, like the families of other countries serving wood and stone. As I live, says the eternal God, and surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. God says he will rule. And there are going to be some rebels. And there will be those that are willing to give up the kingdom for a a seat. And we read here later. God says, verse 38, I will purge the rebels from among you. They're not going to be there. They're not going to be born into his family and those that transgress to me. It doesn't say how he purges them out other than he takes them away. And he says, then you will know that I am the eternal. And yet, the Father wants us in his family and in his kingdom. And I think perhaps, well, I know, more than we wanted ourselves. Because he's a loving father. I tell this story and I'm going to have to tell it in the abbreviated fashion, I think. I give myself permission to tell this about every two years. (laughs) But when my daughter was four years old, we went to the feast in Park City, Utah. And as we were arriving, we flew and we rented a car and we were going down the road and she saw in the distance these beautiful hot air balloons and very colorful. And she says, oh, balloons, balloons, daddy, I want one of these balloons. And I said, well, those aren't balloons. People ride in those things. She said, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that at the feast. And, you know, I didn't know what the activity what activities were. And I said, well, maybe if they have that at a good price, because I knew it had to be expensive, that maybe we can do that at the feast. She said, yeah, I want to go, Daddy. I want to go. I said, well, you'll, I don't know if you'll be able to do that. You'll be frightened. You'll be scared. I won't be scared, Daddy. I will not be scared. I'll do it. I'll. I'll ride in that hot air balloon. And so we did buy the tickets. They they had that at a good price. And the activities, we bought tickets. My son was only six months old, so we left him behind. He was not able to ride that hot air balloon. But my daughter being four years old, we took her to the venue where 
They had the big gigantic balloons laying on the ground and they were blowing the gas fire into the balloons. And this was overwhelming. And she said, I'm not getting in one of those. (laughs) I said, yes, you are. She said, you can't make me. You can't make me. And she was really, really, it was becoming a big scene. And my wife's going. You take care of this. I don't want anything to do with this, and I don't want anybody to see me in this situation. So she left me. She abandoned me there with a four-year-old child. (laughs) All along, I'm arguing with this four-year-old. And everybody else is looking at me and thinking, what a terrible father you are. But you see, I wanted her to follow through with her commitment. That you can't just... Be fickle and start something and not finish it. You know, Luke 14 talks about that, that people will laugh at you, mock you for starting something you don't finish. So I'm dragging her, basically dragging her, kicking and screaming and finally get her to to board the hot air balloon. And even the attendant there says, you probably ought to bring her another time. And everybody there on the balloon, there's 20 people finally get on the balloon. My wife finally drags herself behind and gets on with us. And she's still screaming. It's the loudest thing, high-pitched sound, a little four-year-old. You would not believe how loud they can be. And again, still thinking, I'm the worst dad in the world. Why would you do this? And then finally the hot air balloon begins to ascend into the first heaven, into the atmosphere. And it got really quiet and tranquil. We were about 100 or 200 feet above above the, above the ground and looking down. And it, and it was just so peaceful and tranquil and there was not a sound. And out of that tranquil and that peace, that same little shrill voice said, See, Daddy, I told you I wouldn't be scared. And everybody on that hot air balloon laughed just like you did. And that was a turning point for her. And now, you know, she wants to jump out of airplanes and all kinds of things. So, And it gave her the courage to, to do what she is doing now. She's a nurse. And believe me, it takes a lot of courage to do those kind of jobs. A turning point. You see, I wanted that at that time more than she wanted it. And our Father in Heaven wants us to be in His family, in His kingdom, even more than we want to be there. And I think as long as we don't let go, He'll drag us kicking and screaming if He has to. Because He tells us He will not quit and not give up on us, that He's got a work to finish in us. Now, Isaiah 58 Verse 1 tells us to cry aloud. And it tells the ministers of God to lift up their voice like a trumpet. And sometimes that trumpet, in fact, if you read about this trumpet, it's an ear-splitting sound. To tell my people their sins and their transgressions. And God's ministers are lifting their voices high right now. 
Do you hear the trumpet, brethren? Do you hear the warning? And it's ear splitting at times, but still some can't hear it. And some are willing to give up their their job in the kingdom of God for a couple seats. But if you can hear it, then God calls you his chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And again, if Christ is in us, then we have royal blood and we're, we have a royal destiny to be in his family, in his kingdom. We have the ascribed status to be the bride of Christ. But the bride has to make herself ready. Are you preparing? Are you preparing to rule in the family and the kingdom of God? Because it really all only boils down to one question. What do you want? What do you want? Or how bad do you want it? You know, the song goes, how bad do you want it? And it answers, not bad enough. I hope that's not our answer. Because the Father wants us to be in His family and He desires children. And He's an expectant Father. And He expects a really wonderful harvest. It's like an expectant Father that paces back and forth in the delivery room or outside the delivery room. The Father wants us in His kingdom. And so, brethren, this remarkable knowledge of our wonderful purpose, I hope that it does motivate us to be different. And I hope this feast will motivate us to go on just as 1 John 3, 4 tells us, 3, 3, that if we have that hope that we will go on to purify ourselves, to make ourselves ready and embrace this scribe status which, which, with which God has given us to be in His family, in His kingdom. And motivate us to fulfill what he has held out for us, our royal destiny.